Yeah, this morning we are returning to our expository series in and through Job, the most depressing book in the Bible. Uh, it's actually not that depressing. Uh, it is kind of depressing, but uh, if that's all you get out of it, you're missing the point. Uh, but we, we were in it for quite a while, I think seven or eight months, and uh, stepped away. And we stepped away actually back in January, if you can believe that. So we've been out of it for almost a year, and uh, that tells me that I'm old because time just flies by. It's amazing. It was, a, it was seven months that we were in it, and we managed to get through the first and second cycle of speeches, um, like the first portion of the book all the way up to about chapter 31. There, there's a first, second, and third cycle of speeches, and the speeches are basically between Job and his three friends. And so we managed to get through the first two cycles, which conclude at the end of chapter 21. That's where we left off. And just a you know, really brief recap, we know that, that Job is the main protagonist in the book. Really, I think God is, but in terms of human characters, Job is kind of the main protagonist and character. Um, the book bears his name. It's not Job, it's Job. And he was the blameless, righteous man who suffered the loss of his wealth, family, and health, not because he was involved in some sort of grievous sin or hidden sin, but because God chose to use him to prove an important point to all of creation. The devil was claiming at this point that, that God's people worship Him not because of who He is, but because of what He gives them. And so there was a challenge made to God. Job was a super blessed guy who had all sorts of financial security and a big, beautiful family and, and property and all these things. And the, the challenge is that, well, God, if you take all those things away, He's not going to worship you anymore because He only worships you because of what you've given Him. So that was the challenge, that was the, uh, the, the challenge and test that was laid out, and uh, we see that it's, it's actually talked about in Job chapter 1 verse 11 and Job chapter 2 verses 4 and 5, and what God does with this kind of challenge lingering in the air, He, he presents Job as a, a worthy candidate. Uh, to be tested and to prove the opposite is true, that, that God's people actually worship Him for who He is, not just for what He gives. And, and God knows confidently, because He knows all things, that Job will, will get through this scenario and, and he will not curse the name of God. He'll get close to it, but he won't abandon God. He won't stop worshiping. He won't curse the name of God. God knows this and presents Job as a candidate. So he's kind of the main character who did all the suffering and went through um, just a lot of travail as he's kind of an object being used in this sort of test. And then you have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those are another three main characters. And uh, they were Job's three extremely self-righteous friends who traveled about 100 miles to visit and encourage Job while he was in the midst of his terribly painful ordeal. And yet when they came and started to speak to Job and address Job, their speeches were not encouraging at all. Their words were not helpful. They didn't bring him any comfort in the midst of all his pain. 
In fact, what they did was they kept blaming Job's terrible suffering on some sort of secret sin that he had in his life. You know, you're hiding sin, Job, and you know it, and that's why your entire world has been blown apart. That's what they believed. And Job obviously claimed his his innocence over and over. Every time they accused him of something, and they never got specific, they just said, you've got sin. Every time they did that, he would always defend his innocence. And um, But they rejected every claim of innocence. They just would not listen to him. They heard, but they really weren't listening, and then they would just reject whatever he was saying and just chalk it up as he's just hiding sin. And this is because they had a really faulty, two-dimensional kind of worldview, or even, you might say, theology, understanding of truth. And according to their theology, and, and this is literally it, it's so black and white, those who are righteous, who, who don't sin, and I don't, I don't even know how you come up with that because everyone sins, but their idea is that if, if you are a righteous person and you don't sin, then you are always going to prosper. You are always going to be blessed by God. You are always going to benefit from God. You are always going to have a, a good, clean, trouble-free life. That's their belief. And then, of course, the opposite would be true. If you're a wicked person and you engage in sin all the time, then your life is going to be in shambles. It's going to fall apart. You're not going to be blessed. You're not going to prosper. You know, God is going to be against you. And so that's their understanding of truth. And so because Job is suffering in a way that I think is many of us in this room have suffered, but in comparison to Job, we, none of us have even gotten close to what he's gone through. Their idea is, well, because he's suffering so greatly, he must be a terrible, terrible, terrible sinner. That's what their theology told them. That's their understanding of truth. And quite frankly, there's a lot of people in the world, even in the church, that think that way now. So they rejected him because of all his suffering. They thought he was lying. He had to have some sort of hidden wickedness and sin. And yet they were actually wrong in their theology, and they were certainly wrong about Job. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, yes, sin can bring suffering, all that, and righteousness can bring God's blessing. We don't want to argue against those things. But there's another category that exists, and that category is that the righteous can suffer and will suffer. Righteous people suffer in life. It may not be the disciplinary hand of God that is upon them, but they can get cancers and they can be persecuted and... The righteous suffer, and and that's probably one of the things that the book of Job screams louder than anything else. There is a third category in creation, and that category is righteous suffering. You know, doing good all the time will bring good, but sometimes you'll suffer for being good and doing good. That's righteous suffering. And, And we know this to be true, and this is something that Job argued through all of his responses to his friends that somehow the wicked go long periods of time unscathed, don't they? Sometimes they prosper in ways that just, we're sitting there going, why, aren't, why isn't that corporation, or why isn't that family, or why isn't that particular politician, or why isn't that leader being destroyed by God? Because 
they're committing heinous wickedness. How does Hitler get away with murdering six million Jewish people and three million Christians or whatever the number was? How does that happen? So, so you, have, you have the righteous who are blessed but who can suffer, and you have the wicked who can prosper big time. And so the third category is righteous suffering, and, and the truth is the righteous do suffer just like everyone else. Why? Because they too live in a fallen world, right? And sometimes they suffer because of their righteousness. And that's really the case with Job. And more importantly, that is the case with, with whom the book of Job points to and Job's example points to. And who would that be? Jesus. Because in reality, he is the most righteous and perfect person. He literally never sinned. Job was a sinner saved by grace. Jesus was not a sinner saved by grace. He's perfect. And yet he suffered because of his righteousness. And so did Job. I would say that Jesus is the highest example of this third category. Now, the third cycle of speeches, which we're about to endeavor, is recorded in chapters 22 to chapter 31. Pretty good spance. And in typical fashion, Eliphaz, the, the eldest friend, and we know he's the oldest friend because he's the first to speak in every instance. And in that culture, the older, more, you know, perceivably wise people were the ones who always got to speak first. So if you have Zophar speaking last, then he's obviously the youngest, and that's how it flows. So we have Eliphaz who kind of, he's the first friend to speak in this third cycle of speeches, and I think it's because he was the oldest. And his third and final speech, and this is his last one, praise the Lord, right? Because after reading these guys attacking Job over and over, it gets pretty depressing and sad. But this is his last one, and it, it, it's all contained right here in chapter 22. It's all here. So his final speech is here in 22, and then you have Job's reply to Eliphaz in 23, verse 1, all the way up through 24, verse 25. And then after that, Bildad, the middle friend, he chimes in, and he gives his third and final speech, and it's recorded in a very short section Chapter 25, verses 1 to 6, which is the actual whole chapter and the shortest chapter in the book of Job. And then after Bildad gives his response, then you've got Job's reply to Bildad, which is recorded in chapters 26, verse 1 to 31, verse 40. It's amazing that, that Bildad gives this very short, punctuated, impactful speech, and then Job gives a lengthy response to it. It just goes to show that you don't have to say a lot to get a lengthy response. You just have to say the right thing. And that's what happens. And he, he speaks only, uh, Zophar, who's another friend, he only spoke twice. He's out of the game here. I'd say he's the smartest of the, he's the, he's the youngest, but he's also the smartest because he spoke the least. Amen? More speaking, more trouble. And this morning we're going to begin to walk through Eliphaz's third and final speech right here in chapter 22. It's going to take, I, I would say, at least two sermons to get through it. I thought I was going to handle the whole chapter today, and then after verse 2, I had like five or six pages, and I was like, that's not happening. So uh, we have to break it up because it's, it's involved. There's a lot going on here. And God has a lot to say here. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to give you some A's. Okay, my wife's not here, so I can do this. She hates it when I use all those letters. 
We've got some A's coming up. We're going to have two today and then two next weekend, Lord willing. And, and we need to pick up where we left off. Now, we left off on January 24th. So that's how long it's been. So we're picking up right where we left off. And our first A, what we're going to be looking at firstly is Eliphaz's assumption, his assumption. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. Here's what the, uh, the word of the Lord says. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, here's his response to Job's speech in the previous chapter. He says, can a man be profitable to God, question mark? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. And he asks another question. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless, question mark? And then in verse 4 he says, is it for your fear of him, speaking of God, that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Stop there. So this third and final speech kind of begins with a series of tricky questions, but the first question I think is the trickiest of them all, and it's a very simple question, and it's a poignant question, and I think it's a really good question to ask. Again, Eliphaz's motive is off. He's trying to condemn his friend, so he says a lot of things here that are very true, but they're just misapplied, right? How many times have we done that? And his first question is, can a man be profitable to God? In other words, can any person at all, man, woman, child, baby, can any person at all be profitable to God or before God? Is there anything that they can do for Him that's beneficial? Is there anything that they can do that is profitable for Him or toward Him? That's the question he's asking. Now, the thing is, is that according to his very narrow two-dimensional theology, the answer is no. There's, there's nothing that a man or a woman or a child or anyone can do that would be profitable toward God in any way because God is ultimately has everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. The earth belongs to Him. He's holy, holy, holy. He's glorious. He's transcendent. He's infinite, right? There's, there's no way for man to profit God in any kind of way, shape, or form because God is God and doesn't need anything from us. And that, this, is, this is his theology, this is his answer. He's answering this question because he knows the answer to it, and he thinks that Job should know it. And the answer would be no stinking way. There's no way that man or anybody is profitable to God. There's nothing that they could bring that he doesn't already have. There's nothing they can do to impact or decrease or increase his glory, blah, 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 blah. And I, quite frankly, he's kind of right in a way. And I think if he's referring to unregenerate man, you know, unbelievers, he's a thousand percent correct. Totally correct. There's nothing that a spiritually dead sinner can profit God with. Their works aren't profitable before God. They're an abomination. They're filthy rags. Everything they do is done in hostility toward God, even though they might not be harboring hostility in their heart, because they are willfully rejecting Jesus Christ. They are willfully choosing not to believe in God and to despise and reject Him. So for unregenerate man, there's, there's no profitability there at all. Nothing. There's nothing that sinful man does that benefits God in any kind of way. Now that's not to say that God doesn't work through unregenerate, unbelieving people to accomplish His will. 
and to profit his people. He does. You probably work for a secular company. Yeah, Tim works for Gallo. It's a secular company. It's Roman Catholics. Secular and Roman Catholics, essentially the same thing. It's just a false religion. And yet God works through that ginormous wealthy organization to make sure that Tim has a paycheck, to make sure that he has benefits, to make sure that his wife can stay home, to make sure that he has a roof over his head and vehicles to drive and, and all these things. Is Gallo profitable to God? No. But God uses Gallo to profit his people. There's a difference. So that is happening. But you need to understand that unregenerate man as a whole, unbelievers, they're not profitable to God. Their carnal mind is not at ease or at peace with God. It actually wars against God. That's what Romans 8, 7 says, right? The mind of the unbeliever is at enmity, at war against opposing God, even though that person might not recognize that in those moments. But they are hostile. The mind is hostile. You have to understand that with unregenerate people, um, the intention of the thoughts of unregenerate man's heart are only evil all the time. Genesis 6, 5, this is why God wiped out the world with a flood. Unre unregenerate man, unbelievers, will never be justified before God by what they do. Galatians 2, 16, right? Why is that? Why is it that, that the, the most valiant seemingly pure, cool things that unbelievers do, they have absolutely no profitability or benefit to God. Why is that? Why? Why are their deeds absolutely no good? Because, as I said, they are but filthy rags before God. Isaiah uh, just chapter 64, verse 6. In fact, anything that is done outside of, of real, legitimate, authentic faith in Jesus Christ is sin. Uh, think about Proverbs 15, 8. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked. Who are the wicked? They're unbelievers. They're outside of Christ. The sacrifice of the wicked is what? Pleasing to the Lord? No, it's an abomination. That's God's word, not my word. So, so Eliphaz would be correct if he's referring primarily to the unregenerate, right? If we're talking about unbelievers and people who are outside of the fold who are rejecting Christ, there's no profitability there. That does not mean that God does not use them to profit His people, as in the case of Gallo, or I worked for a bunch of secular employers, you know, for years, and maybe you did too. There's a difference there, but, you know, unregenerate, spiritually dead sinners, they don't profit God. There's no way for the unregenerate to be profitable to God, but that's not to say that God doesn't work some profitability through them. And, but Eliphaz is, I, he's not talking about just the unregenerate, though. He, this is a blanket statement. It's all inclusive, right? He's saying that the unregenerate, unbelievers, and regenerate believers, there's no profitability toward God from any of them, from any of them whatsoever. Now, it, would he be right if he's making an all-inclusive statement here. No, he's not. He's not right. Think about this. If, if there's no way for man in any kind of scenario to profit God, then we would literally not have the book of Job. Right? 
God chose Job because there's profitability with Job. But Job is a believer. He's not an unbeliever. And I think his friends are supposed to be believers, but I'm really wondering. So, so if he's talking about everyone, then he's wrong. If he's talking about only the unregenerate unbelievers, then he's right. And who is he saying this to? To a righteous man. And guess what a righteous man can do? He or she can be profitable to God. That's why what we believers do matters. And what is the profitability? His glory. We just spent, I don't know how long, almost from January studying Galatians, where we talked about justification by faith over and over and over. We basically spent months destroying the idea of our works meriting something from God in terms of justification and salvation, did we not? You know, it, it, we need to make sure that we don't make the mistake of thinking that the works of actual believers don't count for anything. Because guess what I'm telling you this morning, and guess what Eliphaz is reminding us of? Our works matter, what we do as believers. They have profitability toward God. And I don't know why God has, has designed it to be this way, but He has designed things in such a way as to, as to that His glory is expressed and seen and made visual and made even palatable, in a sense, through his people. He has somehow tied, what a risk, but he has somehow tied his glory to his people. So what you do either profits him by bringing him glory or it doesn't. So Eliphaz is wrong when he's talking about somebody like Job, who is a righteous, blameless man, who was, in a sense, in Christ, even though Christ had not yet come. What we do matters, and we don't want to misunderstand the book of Galatians. There's no profitability in our works for justification. We are justified by faith alone, but after the point of impact and, and that we're regenerated and, and, and justified and saved and all that, what we do matters. Our deeds matter. Our works matter. They do matter, and they are either profitable to God or they aren't. Amen? You see, if, if, you, if you teach through Galatians, you can land at antinomianism. You can. You've got to be careful. You can land at, well, works don't matter, so I'll just live my life the way I want. No, they do matter. They have no value for justification. But once you're justified, they have value for God's glory. They are profitable. So what you do as a Christian has a lot of weight. Why, why else is this Christian life called a high calling? You know why it's called a high calling? Because God's glory is either on display through us or it isn't. And there is no higher calling or higher thing in all creation than God's glory. What we do matters. It matters. I would say it like this. It is true that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. True justifying faith always produces good works in the lives of God's people. Always. This is one of the ways that people can know if, they're, if they actually possess true saving faith, if, they're, if they've actually been converted. If, they, if their life prior to the alleged moment of impact was sinful in all this, and after the moment of alleged impact is no different, 
You don't have true saving faith. Your life is supposed to be different because regeneration makes a difference in us. We're changed. We're transformed. We become a new creation. And so our works matter. We can be profitable to God. And the goal of the true Christian is to be as profitable to God as possible, to bring Him glory in all things. And one of the ways we do that is by fleeing from temptation and denying the flesh. See, when you deny the flesh, you bring glory to God. When you engage the flesh, you bring glory to your flesh. And you stack discipline. Huge difference. Eliphaz is unintentionally reminding us of this reality. And in verse 3, he asks the same question in a different way. He says, will it pleasure God... Essentially, will it pleasure God if Job is in the right? And then he says, uh, will God gain anything if Job is blameless? Well, according to Eliphaz, the answer would be another solid no because people have no impact on God whatsoever because he's just too high and lofty, right? He's just too transcendent to be impacted by what unbelieving and believing people do. Was he right about this question or point? No and yes. Unregenerate men are not in the right and they do not bring pleasure to God. They are under God's wrath. There is no way for someone who rejects Jesus Christ, who spurns the gospel to be right with God or to be pleasurable to God or to profit God in any way. Nothing they do makes any difference. They are under wrath. It may not seem like they're under wrath because they're prospering, because they own businesses, because they have nice cars and cute kids and great homes. It may not seem like it, but they are under the wrath of God. Again, he's right if he's talking about unregenerate. They don't bring any pleasure to God. Uh, And guess what? Unregenerate aren't blameless either, nor are they beneficial toward God. God gains nothing from unregenerate man's sinful, wicked lives. He doesn't gain anything from them. And yet, he's wrong to blanket it all together. They're regenerate, actual believers. They do bring God pleasure. They they do bring God glory. They benefit God when they exhibit righteousness, when they exhibit blamelessness. Now, it is true that God alone provides positional righteousness for His people through Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But when they and when we, so we have this positional righteousness, we are righteous before God. But there's also something called not positional, but practical righteousness. When we exhibit practical righteousness through godly living, through righteous living, this pleases God even to the point that He rewards it. Proverbs 13, 21 talks about God blessing and enriching the lives of the righteous. What is practical righteousness? Well, I kind of pointed to it already. It has to do with choosing to do what is right according to Scripture, according to God's will, and I would say on a moment-by-moment daily basis. So it's, it's interesting, right? Christians are positionally right before God, and nothing can ever change that, but they also are called to live righteous, blameless lives, which they can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And when they live righteous lives, it is profitable and beneficial to God, but it has zero impact on their positional righteousness. If they live righteous lives, it doesn't increase their positional righteousness or decrease it. That's fixed, and it's because of faith that we have that. But there is still this practical righteousness. And when you live out the Scripture, when you live... When you deny the flesh and live for God's glory on a moment-by-moment basis, you're living, out that, uh, you're living out that practical righteousness, and you are benefiting, profiting God. It has to do with like living quorum Deo, which is a Latin term that basically means to live one's entire life in the presence of God as if He were right here with us. You, you are living your life under His authority, in submission to His authority, and you are living your life for His glory. That's what Coram Deo means. That was R.C. Sproul's favorite Latin phrase. When you do that, it is gain to God. Why? Because you bring Him glory. You understand? It is also... Gain to the Almighty, that's Eliphaz's phrase in his question. It is gain to the Almighty when a believer makes his or her ways blameless. Okay, Eliphaz doesn't think there's any sort of, you know, any sort of gain toward the Almighty when his people choose to live blameless lives. To be blameless means to be beyond blame or above reproach. Basically, the the most easiest way that I can describe it is, is to live your life in such a way to where people can't come to you and blame you for sinning. Well, I saw how you treated that client of yours in business, and that was pretty nasty. You're not being blameless in that moment. You sinned against a client, somebody sees it, and they call you out on it. They are blaming you for sin. To be blameless is to live in such a way that people can't blame you for sin. You're living a pure and holy life in front of them. Now, I get it. That's not the easiest thing to do at times, but that's what we're talking about. If you know that you're living a blameless life when people cannot blame you for sinful stuff, like what you're saying or how you're acting, when you live a a chaste life, a holy life, that's living the blameless life. And you have the power and ability to do this in and through the Holy Spirit. Now, what does God gain when our ways are blameless? The thing that He wants, glory, glory. So, Eliphaz asked two poignant, very, very good questions, but he's dead wrong about them. Job was positionally righteous because of his faith, but he lived out practical righteousness, and that is the very thing that gained God's attention in the first place. That is why God chose him for this test. That's why God chose him for this activity, to shame the devil and teach creation a lesson. You understand? Job's blamelessness and righteousness, I'm talking about practical righteousness, qualified him for this task. Don't tell me, Eliphaz, or anyone else, that what we do doesn't matter because the book of Job shows that what we do matters. In this scenario, Job is chosen by God because of his practical righteousness, because of his blamelessness, because he was upright. It kind of tells me that that's probably the kind of people that God uses for His glory, even among His own people. Those who live loose, backslidden lives, what what could you possibly, how are you as a Christian going to profit God? 
especially when you're professing Christ and then actively living in habitual sin, sleeping with your girlfriend and then praising Christ on Sunday. How is that profitable? That's a contradiction. That's hypocrisy. What we do matters. It really does. And that's the point here. Now, in verse 4, Eliphaz hits Job with some downright full-blown sarcasm. He asks Job if he truly believes that God is reproving and judging him because he fears God. Because in Eliphaz's system, if somebody literally truly fears God, they're not going to be living a crazy life and there's no reason for God to to bring calamity into their life. And you know what? He's 100% right about this. He's right about this one. He's not right about Job, but he's right in his theology. According to Eliphaz, God would never reprove and judge one who fears him. That would be, according to Eliphaz, very unjust. It would be even unconscionable, right? And, and, and he's right in a sense. Why is that? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. Now, Eliphaz doesn't believe for one moment that Job actually fears God. He doesn't. He's telling Job, you think that all this fell on you because you fear God? It fell on you because you obviously don't fear God. Because only those who don't fear God sin like you have been and get destroyed by God. That's his thinking. He thinks he's hiding sin and that God is reproving and judging him because he doesn't fear God. That's what he's convinced of. But as I said earlier, and, and as the book illustrates, he was totally, totally wrong about Job. He's right in his theology in a sense, but he's wrong about his friend. Job feared God. And how did Job prove his fear of God? By turning away from evil. Job 1.1, the book opens by describing the godly character of this man who suffered such travail. It's like God wants to vindicate him before we even get into all the accusations. We're dealing with a righteous man who lived for God and who profited God. But Eliphaz doesn't believe this at all, and he, he totally believes that all the suffering and everything that's coming upon him is because he doesn't fear God, because that's what should happen. Job was suffering. He was. He was suffering, but it wasn't because God was reproving and judging him. It wasn't because of that. Think about that. If you're living a blameless life, there's nothing for you to be blamed for, either by man or by God. There was nothing, in other words, there was nothing in Job's life to reprove, correct, or judge. Why? Because he was righteous and because he was living for God. He was upright and blameless. There was nothing there to correct, whether it be through calamity or something else. He was, as it says in Job 1.1 and in Job 1.8 and Job chapter 2, verse 3, he was blameless and upright. Remember, the beginning of the book, the first two chapters, establishes godly character, which means every accusation made after, after chapter 2 has no, uh, no stinking way to it at all, at least not the ones that are made by the men. When Job is called out by God in the latter toward the end of the book, there's some justification there. But it's not because Job was living in rampant sin. It's because he was getting close to doing the very thing that Satan projected or thought he would do. Because I tell you what, after suffering the way Job did for probably a year or so, I, I, I'm sure I would have thrown in the towel earlier. Yeah. And you think you're stronger than Job? Hmm? 
You have all your children killed and destroyed. You have your health reduced down to one big pussy boil. That's his flesh. That's his health. You're left with a, a, a wife who just wants you to curse God and die. So she's no help. You have friends that come and visit you and, and just try to destroy what's left of your miserable, pathetic life. All of your wealth. You're the wealthiest man in the East, by the way. It says this in chapter 1. You are the most powerful man in the land, and it's all taken. Your kids, your family, your, your possessions, your wealth, and you have nagging friends. You're constantly being assailed by Satan through these friends. There isn't a person in this room, including your pastor, who would have lasted a week. Would you last? Or would you fold? There's probably a few people in here that think they could hold up. And that's almost like a first John chapter one scenario where like if you don't think you have sin, you're deceiving yourself. There is not a strong person in this room. There isn't. If you think you're strong, you're wrong. There's no strong people in this room. There's just a bunch of weakened sinners who have been saved by grace. Christ is our strength. You don't have strength. You couldn't survive this. You couldn't. In fact, most of us in this room wouldn't even qualify to be used for the test to begin with because we don't live the kind of life that Job lives. And I can say that of myself some days. I can. I'm sorry. Job suffered, but it wasn't because God was reproving and judging him. There was nothing in his life to reprove or judge. It was because God allowed the devil to torment him and to test Job for the purpose of vindicating the truth that God is worshipped not merely because of what he gives to his people, but because of who he is, his, he, him as a person, as, as a being, as God is worthy to be worshipped, not just because he likes to bless his people. And quite frankly, he blesses a lot of unbelievers too, doesn't he? Because he causes the rain to fall on the wicked and the righteous. And I say it was Job's fear of God, his uprightness, his blamelessness that actually qualified him for this incredible task. Now, I'm thinking that most of us in this room uh, would say, um, it, it's okay, I want to live a righteous, blameless life for you, I want to bring you profitable glory and all this, but don't choose me for this kind of test. Please, God? And I think if Job was given the option, he'd have said, I vote no. In the last election, I voted no. In fact, I voted for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Use them. Ha <laughs> ha! Right? But there, there, is, there is a blessing in this for Job as well. If he ever came to any sort of understanding of how God used him and what God was using him for, that would be enough for me to, to live in a shanty with a pallet for a door for the rest of my life to be counted worthy, to be used like that, even though insanely painful. He was chosen because of his godly qualities, because he was profitable to God. That's why he was chosen, and ultimately because God is sovereign. So in a mysterious way, it was Job's fear of God that got him noticed and got him so much pain. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And it didn't come through the literal hand of God, but it did come through the devil, but at God's discretion. There were parameters and limits. You, can't, you can harm him, but you can't kill him, God said to the devil. 
Bottom line, a fear of God can lead to suffering. If you fear God, that can lead to suffering, right? We could be persecuted for fearing God and for not going along with our depraved Romans 1 society. In fact, if you stand in opposition to it, you're, you're going to be persecuted. And it's your fear of God and your respect of His Word that leads you to take that stand. And so your fear of God, your respect of His Word can lead to persecution and suffering. In fact, I was reading earlier this week, you know, there's a high school freshman who was recently suspended from playing football for telling another student that the Bible teaches only two genders. This freshman was removed from his team for a period of time for just making that simple statement on the bus. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian and I, I believe what the Bible says and the Bible lays out that God created them man and woman. There's your genders. I don't know where this 150 thing's coming up, but that's what I believe, and the Bible's clear on that. And that kid that he told got all blown out and snowflake melted down and went and told the dean or somebody, and they suspended this kid. That kid had a fear of God and a respect for God's Word and stood on principle in that moment, and he was persecuted for it, wasn't he? It happens. And I think it's going to happen more and more. God does not reprove and judge those who fear Him. He has no reason to reprove and judge them. They fear Him. They're living their life for Him. There's nothing there to punish. There's nothing there to discipline. Eliphaz, he, he, he is right about that, but he's wrong about Job. And we need to understand that the devil will persecute those who live righteous God-fearing lives. And so will the world. The world will punish you for that. It will persecute you for doing that. Second A, number two, Eliphaz's accusation, verses 5 through 11, the rest of our text, bigger section. Listen to what he says to Job next. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end. Listen to this. There is no end to your iniquities. He's saying your sin has no limit. You are the worst sinner. You're the chief. I know the Apostle Paul is going to make that statement in a couple thousand years, but guess what? You beat him. You are the chief of sinners. He says, for you have, and listen to this, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land. And the favored man lived in it. He's speaking of Job. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Verse 10 and 11, therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. That's how he's talking about all these natural disasters that have come upon Job for sinning and committing all these social sins against widows and everyone else. Now, in his first and second speeches, Eliphaz accuses Job of hiding sin, but he never actually mentions any specific sins. His message is, I know you're hiding sin, I know you're hiding sin, I know you're hiding sin. Well, what is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to wait till chapter 22. It's just a generalization. This is like, um, these are generalized indictments. I know you're hiding sin, that's why you're suffering so tremendously. And yet in, in this particular paragraph, he identifies the specific sins he thinks that Job is actually hiding. 
And we need to understand something about Eliphaz and Eliphaz's type here. Okay, he's a self-righteous person. He, he thinks that, you know, he's living the kind of life that is pleasing to God and, 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 you know, he doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't sin like Job. And look at my life. I don't have boils all over me. I, I, my skin is very, very, I use Clearasil. Look how clear it is. I don't have a zit on my face. He, literally, he, he thinks that he's got it all together. So he's a self-righteous person. And self-righteous people like Eliphaz, what they do is they determine a person's sinfulness by measuring their suffering. That's what they do. So since Job's suffering was at a level that, that Eliphaz had probably never seen, he assumes that Job must be the absolute worst sinner of all time. Right? Because, because in his theology, if, if you're sinning in a great, grand way, like David with Bathsheba, your life is going to become a living hell. You're going to lose everything. Your skin's going to explode. Your family's going to die. You know, you're going to lose all your wealth. Gallo's going to implode. And, and then Tim comes to work here as our, our yard duty. I don't know where that came from. I don't even know what a yard duty is. But right? He, he is basically... He looks at Job and understands what's going on with him, and he's measuring all his suffering, and he equates that to great sin. There is no way that somebody like Job or anyone else is going to suffer this level of, of destruction without being a horribly sinful person. This is why he says, is not your evil abundant, right? There is no end to your iniquities. He's even saying, in fact, you're continuing to sin by denying the fact that you're hiding sin. But he does get specific here finally. After 22 chapters, he finally starts identifying Job's alleged sin. But first he sets the stage in verse 5, right? He just kind of sets the stage by making those blanket statements because Job has been defending his blamelessness and innocence, and he just he sets the stage by saying, you know, by asking the question, you know the answer to this, Job, because you're hiding sin. Is not your evil abundant? You need to quit lying to yourself. And the fact of the matter is there's no end to your iniquities, and you know it. And when are you going to actually repent and get right with God? Because your life is a mess because you have terrible sin. That's what he says in verse 5. Now, in verses 6 to 9... He commits, or he accuses Job of committing three specific sins, okay? You might want to write them down. A, first one he hits him with, and I'll just give you my interpretation of it, then the verse. You committed dishonest business practices, right? You're a, dishon you're a shyster in business, Job. You're a scam artist. You, it's like you lead a Ponzi scheme. You rip people off. That's what you do. We see this in verse 6. And he says it like this, For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and you have stripped the naked of their clothing. Now, since Job was incredibly wealthy before his life fell apart, Job chapter 1, verse 3, Eliphaz assumes that he acquired all of his wealth and possessions illegitimately through literal dishonest business practices, such as what? He says here, taking pledges. What is that? It, it's basically... If somebody comes to you and wants to borrow property from you, you take something as collateral. That's a pledge. So he basically thinks because Job, and here's the thing, he has the wrong idea about wealth. He assumes that somebody with that level of wealth must be corrupt. 
because there's no way to get that wealthy without corruption. This is his view of his, his, his BFF here. And then he's charging him with this. Look, you, you were, you've, got, you've gotten so wealthy and you're suffering so greatly because you have taken pledges from people who wanted to borrow from you. But when they came back and paid you back, you didn't return those items that they gave you as a pledge. You didn't return to them what they put up for collateral. You decided to take your money back or your property and then you decided for interest or whatever reason to keep whatever it is they gave you as collateral. That's what he's charging him with. That's a dishonest business practice, right? Now, in Job's day, it was fairly common for a man to offer his outer garment for collateral uh, for a loan. They wore multiple layers of clothing, and their clothing was very expensive back in the day. Not everyone had expensive clothing, but all of you know, the people that Job is obviously associated with probably did because he was super wealthy, and typically people who are wealthy hang out with other wealthy types. I don't know if that sounds like an indictment, but in any case, your clothing meant a lot and it had a lot of value. And people would wear multiple tunics, one on the inside or underclothes, and then they would wear uh, a tunic on the outside or what they called an outer garment. And what Eliphaz is saying is that you took the outer garments of your brothers as pledges, but you never gave them back when they paid you back, right? Therefore, you left them naked and cold. That's the charge. That's the accusation. I'll tell you what, Eliphaz reminds me of today's social justice warriors, right? They like to blame the rich for all of our societal problems. They do. And, and this is not to, to give a blank slate or carte blanche to all the wealthy people. There are corrupt wealthy people. Wealth can corrupt you. But Eliphaz reminds me of today's social justice warriors who, who literally assume about everyone who has wealth, they must be corrupt and bad. Like, their mind doesn't allow them to, to comprehend or understand the idea that some people out there actually earn their way through hard work, through discipline. No, today's social justice warrior doesn't think that way. If you have a lot of money, there's something wrong, and you probably got it by standing on the backs of all the poor people. That's the way they think. There's something, there's a defect in their mind. And the defect is called Romans 1. They wrongly assume that wealth is synonymous with corruption. And, and the amazing thing to me is that the, the loudest voices in our culture for this movement are wealthy people. Bernie Sanders... He has a net worth of over a million dollars, okay? I'm never going to reach that level unless this church grows. Help us, Lord. Just kidding. <laughs> the main voices are wealthy people. In fact, you know, the, the, the leader of BLM, Black Lives Matter, just bought $1.4 million property in a very, very luxurious, nice neighborhood in Los Angeles. One of the biggest voices for social justice and, 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 and blaming rich people for all of our societal travail and trouble. And that's wrong. You can't indict all rich people because they're rich. You can't indict all white people because they're white, and that's happening today. If you're white, man, I tell you what, you're a demon. This is what the woke movement's doing. But the amazing thing about it is they're hypocrites because the people that are really pushing this stuff are wealthy. 
And, 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 and I never, I've never ever believed for one moment that it's actually about social justice. This is about envy. People envy what others have and are upset about it and want that and they want to take it instead of earn it. That's the problem and that's a problem of the fallen mind and heart. That's actually what's going on. And I believe that's Eliphaz's issue. Eliphaz is jealous and envious of who Job was. You acquired all that. You became the most powerful man in the East. You make Trump look like a pauper. There's no way you did that legitimately. You had to have ripped off people when they you know, borrowed from you. You just kept their possessions and their money and sent them away naked. That's what you did. You had to have done that. Does he know that Job did this? No. But that's what he's assuming just as people in our society today assume that people who have possessions and money are evil and have done it through wrong business practices. You see the connection there, don't you? Now, the interesting thing is, is that Eliphaz, just like Sanders and others today, Eliphaz was wealthy. <laughs> the wealthy blaming the wealthy. We know he was wealthy. We know that Bildad and Zophar, we know that the whole group of friends were wealthy. How do we know this? I'll tell you why. Because that 100-mile trip they took to visit Job would have been very expensive. Probably took about four days. Okay? So you needed enough provision for four days for your entire posse that came with you, for all of your animals. And you also had to have a security team with you. Why? Because you had Sabians and Chaldeans roaming around looking for people to annihilate. The roadways, the highways and byways back in Job's day were very, very dangerous. Not because of car crashes or camel crashes, but because you had people hiding in the bushes ready to stab you and take your possessions. That trip, this trip, 100-mile trip was expensive. And then, have we ever asked this question? Well, how long did they stay there with Job while they were, quote-unquote, encouraging him? This went on for a while. So you've got room and board, Three meals a day, three hots and a cot every day. You've got boarding for your animals. They're staying in an inn. This was an expensive trip, okay? Yes, it was more expensive than some of our people's trips to Disneyland. Cameron's like, no, it wasn't. Seriously, these guys had money. They had money. They had possessions. They had wealth. And I think that the issue is, is that they were just envious of Job, and that's why they accused him of business, you know, dishonest business practices. They wanted what he had. At one time, he had all this wealth and power, and they wanted that, but they didn't have the financial acumen or skill to generate that kind of revenue. So when he lost it all, they rejoiced because that's what envious people do, and then they started blaming him and sending charges his way. We know that you were a bad business guy. We know that you ran your moving company in a wrong way, that you were a bad DJ, you know. And I think that's what's driving today's social justice movement. It's not about equity. It's not about equality. It never has been. It's about envy, greed, and pure laziness. People want to take from others because they're not willing to put in the work and earn their way. That's a fact. The Bible calls those who 
act like this, kind of like the, the Eliphaz type or the social justice person of today, probably not all of them, but a great many of them, the Bible has a name or a title for these types of people who want to take from others because they're not willing to put in the work. And that title is called sluggard. And the book of Proverbs talks about the sluggard over and over and over. There's a bunch of verses, verse references in the other side of your bulletin. Eliphaz assumed that Job's vast wealth had come through dishonest business practices, and he accused Job of ripping off his brothers after being paid back by them. You didn't give him the collateral back, you scum. That's what he's saying. B, here's the second sin he charges, charges Job with. You withheld life-sustaining resources from the poor, verse 7. And I want you to know that the bad business practices was a terrible indictment, but they get worse as you get to the third one. Like, right, they're increasing. And he says it like this. He tells Job, you have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Now, there were people in, in Uz, that's his homeland, Job's homeland, they, that lacked the, you know, the bare essentials, the basics, right? Just as in every culture or community, there's always going to be poor people who don't have the basic things that, that the majority of us have, right? And in this case here, it's water and bread. There were people there that just didn't even have water or bread. Water would have been harder to get there because it was through wells and maybe people charged to use the well. I don't know. But there were people there that, that just did not have water and bread on a, a regular basis and all that. And what is Eliphaz doing? He's accusing, accusing Job of committing this grievous social sin of withholding these basic life-sustaining elements from those who need them most, the weary and the hungry. That's what he says. Now, this is a, this is a serious sinful thing here. This is a serious charge. Imagine, what does that make you think right there? If you have someone who has that kind of wealth and power, this is before he kind of fell, all that wealth and power, and when people who are starving and thirsty ask for help, you basically pull an Ebenezer Scrooge on them and kick them out of your doorway. What does that, how does that make you feel? Does that make you, does that make you a little bit angry? It makes me angry to think that there'd be people out there that would do that. Well, that's exactly what Eliphaz thinks that Job's been doing. And quite frankly, Scripture warns us not to neglect those in need. The Israelites were told, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, this is God speaking to His people, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy 15, 11. God is saying you better take care of people who need bread and water. Jesus taught about final judgment in Matthew 25, and in verses 33 to 40, He describes the difference between the righteous sheep and the wicked goats. The righteous sheep are blessed by the Father and welcomed into the kingdom. They prove to have authentic saving faith through action, through good deeds. What did they do? They fed the hungry. They gave water to the thirsty. They welcomed the stranger. They clothed the naked. They, they visited the sick and incarcerated. They lived out their faith. And then Jesus says the wicked goats, they displayed a false inactive faith, a dead faith, right? James 2.17. What did they do? They neglected the hungry. They neglected the thirsty. They neglected the stranger. They neglected the naked. They neglected the sick and the incarcerated. And guess what Jesus says of them, those who were fake posers, who wouldn't even lift a finger for those who were in need, who proved to not have true saving faith. They were not welcomed by the Father into the kingdom of heaven. Instead, they were sent away to eternal punishment. 
Eliphaz is essentially telling Job, you're a wicked goat. It's all you are. If, if, if Job, in Eliphaz's mind, if Job has faith at all, then it's obviously a dead faith because he's saying here that Job didn't use it or put it into action. He didn't give water to the weary. He didn't give food to the hungry. He didn't care for people. Instead, he sinned by withholding these life-sustaining resources from the poor. He had the power and resource to act, and he chose to be selfish. That's what Eliphaz is saying you did, Job. You are a terrible sinner. And then C, the last indictment or accusation, you refused to use your power for the most vulnerable people in us, verses 8 and 9. He says this, and he's talking of Job first, the man, the man with power possessed the land. You, you, Job, you had power and you possessed the whole land, and you were the favored man who lived in it. And here it is, you have sent widows away, empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed by you. I think this is the cruelest accusation of all. Eliphaz is charging Job with abandoning widows and orphans. That's what he's saying. Who are the most vulnerable people in any culture or community? Widows and orphans. And Eliphaz is looking him right in his tore-up eyes and saying, you have, you have mistreated, you have abandoned, you wouldn't provide for the least of these you are such a wicked, nasty, ugly, ridiculous person. He is charging him with abandoning the least. Now, the half-brother of Jesus and pastor of the Jerusalem church, James, he called caring for widows and orphans religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless. James chapter 1, verse 27. The abandonment of widows and orphans would therefore be the opposite, religion that is unacceptable, impure, and faulty. According to Eliphaz, this is the state of Job's religion. It is utterly useless. And the fact that he was super wealthy and powerful during those days makes all of this way worse in Eliphaz's mind. You know, it's understandable if you're flat broke and barely have enough resource to survive or feed your family, it's more understandable for somebody in that scenario not to be able to provide for others. But for somebody like Job, who is wealthier than Croesus in his day, it's unconscionable for somebody that wealthy and powerful to be like a Scrooge. Eliphaz literally says, you possessed the land. What does that mean? It means he owned all the acreage in his area. He almost owned all of us. That, he was a developer, a land developer in a sense. Eliphaz says, you were the favored man, which means that you were the wealthiest and most powerful man in us. That's what Eliphaz is saying. And this is actually stated back in Job chapter 1, verse 3, where it says of Job, he was the greatest man among all people, all the people of the east. What does that mean? He was the wealthiest, most powerful man in that whole area, that whole territory. And Eliphaz is essentially calling Job a sinful miser, an Ebenezer Scrooge who had the wealth and power to do so much good in his community, but instead he chose to be selfish and to lavish himself with all of his blessing and, and prosperity and all that. He kept it all to himself. He sat there and he just counted his coins at the table. Cratchit, stop putting coal on the fire. 
That's what he's blaming. He's, he's calling him a Scrooge. And according to Eliphaz, this is why Job is suffering. All of this. Right in verses 10 and 11, the last couple of verses, he says, because you're an unfair business person and have ripped off your brothers, um, you know, because you withheld all these resources from those who needed them, because you refused to use your high power to, to care for the most vulnerable widows and orphans, because of all this, this is why there are snares all around you. This is why sudden terror overwhelms you. This is why you are in darkness and you cannot see. This is why you feel like the floodwaters are, you know, we're, we're in like um, Alabama now or Louisiana where the floodwaters are rising because the levees have broken and the water is now coming up over your home. You feel like this and all this calamity is happening to you because you're this terrible sinner who's done these things. Closing. Quite frankly, I don't know how Job sits there and takes it. I, I, he is a better man than everyone in this room, especially me, because how do you sit through this? Could you sit through this? The great question here is, is was Eliphaz right about Job? Was he right? Was Job this terrible chief of sinners that makes Paul look like an angel? Was he this chief of sinners who, who literally engaged in abundant evil, who had no end to his iniquities? Did Job actually commit these heinous sins, dishonest business practices, ripping off his brothers, leaving them naked, withholding life-sustaining resources, giving no bread or water, when, when he, could have given them, he could have given them steak and wine? Is that what he did? Did he refuse to use his power to care for widows and orphans in his community, in us? Are these charges true? Absolutely not. They're just accusations. None of it's true. In Job chapter 29, verse 14, it says this, Job clothed himself in righteousness and wore justice like a robe and turban. Okay, the man who does this is not going to commit dishonest business practices. If Job took a pledge from someone, and I don't see why he ever would have, when you're that wealthy, you can just give. You don't even have to loan anything, and I'm sure he gave. But if he had taken a pledge... From someone, there is no doubt that as a man who clothes himself in practical righteousness on a moment by moment, a man who prays for his sinful kids, it talks about that in, in chapter 1, a, a man who does these things and who takes pledges, he most certainly gives back whatever those people have pledged. A man like this has earned his wealth the old-fashioned way, hard work, Discipline, saving, investing. And then in chapter 29, the same chapter in verses 12, 13, 15, 16, and 17, it says this of Job. He, listen to this, he delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had no help. He helped 
that he basically helped the poor when they cried for help, and he helped the fatherless. He helped widows and orphans. Listen, he caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. How do you do that? By caring for them. Listen to this. Job was like a set of eyes to the blind, and he was like feet to the lame. Those who couldn't even get around, he ran errands for them. He did their grocery shopping. Listen to this. It says this. He was a father to the needy. He cared for the orphans. Listen to this. He searched out the cause of him whom he did not know. When there was a stranger in the community wronged by someone in his town, the town of Uz or wherever it was, he came to the aid of that person and sought out justice for that person. He was a real social justice warrior. He broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. If he saw the mistreatment of someone, he intervened and said, you wicked person, you stop mistreating that person. He was the exact opposite of everything that he was accused of here and better than the exact opposite. Like Christ. Eliphaz was convinced that Job was hiding these terrible sins and that is why he was suffering. He's convinced of it. Now, he was right about a few things in his theology. God will reprove and judge sin. There's no doubt about that. And sin absolutely leads to suffering. I mean, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Sin kills. That's why we better be killing it. He was right about those things, but he was completely wrong about Job. He totally, in, in the most incredible way misjudged his friend and he's actually come there to help him you know the scary thing is there are still people around who think just like Eliphaz if you do good you'll always get good if you do bad you'll always get bad they have no category for righteous suffering in their worldview or theology right they're just like Eliphaz I've met people in the church who think like this. Well, you make sure you do all this good stuff for God so you can prosper. And if you start doing bad stuff, He is going to do a dump truck's worth of judgment on you. And, you know, there's no middle ground. There's no righteous suffering. There's no category. There's people like this who call themselves Christians. You know, they've been baptized in prune juice. The problem is, is that if you don't have a category for righteous suffering in your theology or worldview, you have no category for Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you say you love Jesus or know Jesus. If you don't understand righteous suffering, then you don't understand the Savior you call your Savior because He is the highest meta-example of righteous suffering. Job is a puny example, pretty extraordinary example. Comparatively speaking to Jesus, He is the highest example of righteous suffering. And you know what? Something else we need to not forget? Job's righteous suffering, it had a great purpose. It did. God worked through it to vindicate the truth about Himself, that His people worship Him not merely because of what He gives, but because of who He is. I'll tell you what, if any of us should be called to, for God to use our life and our, our faith in that to to prove that to someone or to the devil, I can't think of a higher blessed calling than to be chosen like Job, even if you have to go through hell. 
But more importantly, we know Job's suffering had a great purpose. More importantly, we need to understand that Jesus' righteous suffering had a greatest, it had the greatest purpose. God worked through his righteous suffering to not, not to necessarily vindicate the truth about people worshiping him for who he is. He did it to vindicate lost sinners like you and me across the board, to vindicate us. The fact of the matter is we have all committed cosmic treason against God. We have all violated and transgressed his holy law. That's treasonous to do that. Because of that, the law stands against us, and it actually condemns us. The law does. And yet, when Jesus went to Calvary and died on the cross, it says in Colossians 2.14, He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. It is Jesus' cross work that vindicates law-breaking transgressors, sinners like you and me. If we will repent of our unbelief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, God will forgive our sins. He will wash them away. He will vindicate us. He will set us free from the law's demands and penalties. That is the greatest purpose behind the crushing of Jesus on the cross, the vindication of sinners like you and me. And that's the beauty of Job. Job, the righteous sufferer, the whole point of it is to point to the ultimate righteous sufferer, Christ, our vindicator. Amen?